Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. James chapter 4, verse 4 to 10. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with, of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And we get reminded that the grass fades, and the, or the flowers fade, and the grass withers, and the flowers fade. But the, the word, word of God, God remains, remains forever. forever. Thank you, Gerben. Let's go to the Lord and ask his help as we look at this uh, passage together. Bow with me, please. Father, we come before you once again this morning and just thank you that you have carried us through yet another week. And uh, Lord, we just uh, are thankful for the faithfulness, Lord, that you are the unchanging one. Lord, that you are the same God who revealed yourself to Abraham and called him, Lord. And you are the same one who uh, revealed yourself to Jacob and who came to, to Moses and promised the deliverance of your people. Um, Lord, the same God whom Isaiah saw and worshipped and, and, Lord, that has come to us in the person of Christ, that we would be delivered from our sins, that we would be brought near to you, given eternal life. And, Lord, we are just uh, amazed at your patience over these many years to bring about the fullness of your plan. And now, even in these last days in which we live, Lord, we pray that you help us to be steadfast. Lord, that we would be humble before you. And that we would shine as lights in a, in a dark world, Lord, uh, not growing weary, um, but Lord, counting your patience as, uh, Lord, uh, as an opportunity for uh, the, the gospel to go forth and for men and women and children of every tribe, tongue and nation to repent and believe. And Lord, we pray that you help us to uh, just use each moment to your glory. And even now, as we consider this passage, Lord, this strong Warning from James that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and that we would uh, respond appropriately as your spirit uh, convicts us and reveals your word to us. And we thank you for the promise of your presence and Lord, the, the promise that the, the spirit, our helper, would take from what Christ has given and reveal it to us. And so I trust that 
you will help us now to be attentive and, Lord, to, to minister to us, to, uh, Lord, help us to uh, grow uh, less interested in the things of this world, in the spirit of this age, and to have an increased love and desire for Christ, for his beauty, and, Lord, his kingdom advancing. We ask this all now in his name. Uh, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> So the title this morning, uh, once again, is not very original from the past uh, few weeks, is Rooting Out Worldliness, Part 2. Last week, we looked at rooting out worldliness in prayer, kind of focusing in on the instruction James gives to to prayer specifically that uh, we need to ask often of the Lord and we need to ask with humility and the proper motive uh, as he instructed us there at the beginning of the chapter. So we want to focus this morning to look further at this whole idea of worldliness and the danger that it poses to the Christian. Uh, Why is James so adamantly concerned about this issue within the church and uh, want to properly get an understanding of that, Lord willing, and then we will move next week to look at the solution that James puts forward to this problem uh, that we know is always waging war against the Christian, not only from the outside, but also internally within our own uh, sinful desires that still can declare war against us. In the beginning of the documentary, we started on Wednesday, uh, Antichrist and His Ruin. Uh, I will try to get a a link shared for those that would like to watch it but weren't able to make it. Um, It's through their, they had built a website, antichristdocumentary.com, and you purchase the Uh, video, but I can share that. I'll try to do that uh, this week. But anyways, in the beginning, as you recall, for those that saw it, Pastor Jacob was talking about the imagery of a trellis and how there is the vine of the kingdom of God, which is growing upon the trellis of this world and is producing sweet and life-giving fruit and seeks to cover the trellis. And then there is also the vine of Sodom, which seeks to grow upon the same trellis of this world and is also trying to cover it to choke out the good vine, but its fruit is bitter and poison. And, uh, and this is the reality that, that we see in the world around us constantly, whether it's in the workplace or in government or in education or in healthcare. We, we don't have to look very far to see evidence of this struggle, this conflict. And it is one thing to look out at the world and see that reality at play, but it is another to look at our very own hearts and souls and see the same tension there, to see the same battle going on within us as those who've been called out of the world. And we have been given the necessary means to root out the vine of Sodom within our own hearts and minds, but it does take courage, it takes work, it takes humility and dependence upon the spirit of the living God. And it will be something that we work at until either Christ returns and glorifies all things or until we, are, we die and the Lord calls us home. This will be a work that we must be engaged in day after day. It's not a one-time battle, but something that we continually uh, engage in process of our sanctification, of weaning ourselves off of this world, off of the desires of the flesh, 
that are always trying to rise up within us. So this morning we want to look at how James describes this struggle and how we can never make peace with the spirit of this age, with this vine of Sodom. We don't ever decide to just let it be, to, to uh, let it just kind of have its way within us. We must be in the, engaged in this battle. We must be working to root it out within our own hearts and souls. And uh, we, we must think of even like the, the gardener. Um, how foolish would he be if he convinced himself that if he just leaves the weeds alone, they will stop spreading. If he just doesn't disturb the weeds in the garden, that maybe they will just be content with their corner. Uh, we know that, that weeds never stay put. They, they always want to reproduce. They always want to spread and cover the entirety of the garden. They must be uprooted and destroyed. And so it is when we deal with this issue of worldliness within our own hearts, within our own lives, within our church body, within our homes, uh, even extending out within our community and country. We are to engage in rooting out this mentality. Now, James is obviously very Uh, intentional in his letter. He is very pastoral in that he doesn't only hold forth the truth of God's word, but James works hard to apply that truth in an impactful and relevant way uh, to his hearers. And that's maybe partly why the book of James is so painful, because he not only gives us the truth, which we can affirm, but then he works to help us apply that in real practical, relevant ways within our life. And uh, that is the great challenge of the Christian teacher, not only to explain the truth rightly, but then to apply it in a way that is understood and relevant. But we do need to first understand the truth before we can properly apply it. And James uses the imagery to help us understand what he's talking about of adultery in the beginning of verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And uh, John MacArthur pointed out, which I hadn't thought of before, that the imagery of adultery is almost exclusively used of Israel within the scriptures. And it's fitting here because we know that James is initially writing this letter to the Jewish believers. He tells us in James 1 to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greeting. So, so in the early days of the church, when this letter was written, there were primarily Jewish believers. The gospel had not uh, gone as uh, strongly to the Gentiles, uh, probably at this point. And so James is picking up on that old Testament imagery of adultery that we see Jeremiah use and Ezekiel and Isaiah and the prophets use this sort of language to rebuke Israel for their unfaithfulness to the covenants of God. And we've certainly seen that even in the book of Judges, this imagery. This is not talking so much about a, 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 an adultery within the, the physical sense of the people's marriages, but it is an analogous of the spiritual condition in which these professing believers are. They are spiritual adulterers, is what James is talking about. And he clarifies it with this idea of friendship with the world. It is to be friendly towards the philosophies of the world, this worldview, the this, this spirit of the age, uh, to, to not declare war on it, but to try and make peace. 
this is not so much uh, in, in dealing with the, the, the adultery with one particular person, but with this whole idea of embracing this system, this demonic system that is anti-God, anti-Christ, and is in rebellion to God. It is when the Christian gives themselves over to that, when they begin chasing after the same ideologies of this world, that they are committing a spiritual form of adultery. And it feels like uh, somewhat, I guess, in God's providence, we've been kind of hit with this theme from all different angles lately. Uh, I can't say that I set out initially to, to, to be kind of confronted with this issue from so many different places. It's just the way that it has happened. Um, but uh, in the book of Judges, we've seen the, the danger of this sort of friendship with the pagan nations and how it will infiltrate the, the loyalty and allegiance of God's people and lead them into idolatry, which brings about the judgment and, and, and discipline of the Lord. Um, we have seen this even as we begin the, the documentary on Antichrist and his ruin, um, looking at our own day and time and, and how Christians can be lured into the, the spirit of this age. Uh, and then through the book of James, this theme continually comes up that we are to be a people set apart from the world in which we live. But as I stated a few weeks ago, I am praying uh, for myself and for all of you, that, that this year we would see God do a deep work of spiritual cleansing within our hearts, that God would, would be gracious to show us areas where we personally are, are giving ourselves over to this sort of spiritual adultery or even being entertained by the idea of giving ourselves over to it, that, that this would be rooted out within our very own hearts and souls before we begin addressing issues maybe within our family or even as we look at one another as a church body or as a country, there must begin within us this spiritual repentance and cleansing by the Spirit of God. Do we not desire to see and know God more clearly, more deeply? Even as we talked with the children, that, that we are made by God and for God. And so it's fitting that our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction and delight as God's creation would be found in him alone. As we clearly understand who he is and walk in obedience to his word, that actually is the place where we also find our greatest joy and delight. So this isn't some you know, tyrant in, in the sky who wants us to, to shun all joy and all satisfaction and, and, and just to live miserable, unhappy lives. God knows that we are made for him and, and our joy is found in him. So through repentance, through turning from the spirit of this age, there is actually life and peace and joy everlasting in his presence. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that is an amazing promise that brokenness for sin and repentance within our own hearts and minds, it's never an end in itself. We don't just desire repentance for repentance sake or confession for confession sake as though that's the, the chief end of man. We, we, we want to go through repentance that we might more clearly see and know God, that we might understand him rightly. That is the chief end through which even repentance will lead us. 
Like the house on the edge of the ocean, they will uh, make sure to keep the, the windows clean. Not just so that the windows are clean, but so they might have the beautiful view of the ocean uh, on which they, by which they live. In, in the same way, in repentance, we don't just want clean hearts and minds as an end, but we want to see God, and we know, as Jesus said, that it is the pure in heart. Those who are walking in repentance before God will be given a greater knowledge of who he is, the ability to worship him and to enjoy him as we are designed. And so there is, is life on the other side of repentance. And I think that's why James is, is willing to come at them with such a strong word, may, maybe even seeming harsh to us because he knows the good that comes through it, that we might behold God more, right, uh, more clearly and rightly. So I know a few weeks ago I did um, borrow a definition of worldliness from uh, C.J. Mahaney, and uh, this one is very similar. It's actually from Ian Murray, but I thought also very good just to help us get an understanding of when we talk about worldliness, when we talk about this issue of, of friendship with the world in the context that James is using it. Uh, obviously, this is not talking about the sort of friendship that Jesus was described as having, as being a friend of sinners, uh, associating with those who are outcasts and unclean. Yes, that, that is true of Jesus. That is a good form of Christian friendship to associate with the lowly, to love them, to be kind to them, to talk to them. But that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about a, a form of worldliness, a form of love for the things uh, of this world. And Ian Murray described it this way, which I thought was uh, also very helpful. Worldliness is departing from God. It is a man-centered way of thinking. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things by the present and material results. It weighs success by numbers. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which it is worth suffering. It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. Worldliness is the mindset of the unregenerate. It adopts idols and is at war with God. And I thought that was uh, very helpful as you think about your own understanding of success. What does a, a successful life look like to you? Is it based solely on numbers and wealth? Is importance based on material results? What do we desire? Do we, do we covet human esteem? And do we loathe the idea of being unpopular in the workplace or in our communities or even in the eyes of the state? Are there truths which you would be willing to suffer for, which you would be willing to die for? Even as David referenced Polycarp, would you refuse to bow the knee to the state and pay homage to them, knowing it would cost you a your very life. And I know there's a sense in which we don't ultimately know how we would respond until we find ourselves in those moments. But by God's grace, we even now can, can be praying for that sort of strength, that sort of courage to, to be praying that God would give us an undivided loyalty to him, a willingness to suffer. Because the worldly heart and mind will flee from any notion of suffering, declines to be a fool for Christ's sake, 
adopts idols and is at war with God. John Owen described worldliness, which I thought was uh, also very helpful. He said it's a living affection to dying things. Living affections to dying things. And it's interesting when we talk about our affections, uh, and that's often how many of the old saints referred to some of these things, because there's something about our affections, our desires, that reveals the priorities of our heart, the, 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 the things that we are willing to die for are often also the things that we uh, long for, that we desire, the, the things that when we are uh, quiet and, and by ourselves, that where, where does our mind tend to go? What do we want to think about? What is it that, that, that brings joy to you? Uh, and, and there are, of course, many good things that God has given. We can find a sense of joy in, and that's not sinful to delight in, in your children or in your marriage or, uh, you know, even in a promotion at work or some unexpected income or Uh, you know, finding an item on sale that you were hoping to get. You know, these are things that we can still obviously give thanks to God for. But the problem is when when those sort of things begin to become more desirous to us, they take more place of prominence in our heart and our affections than God himself, than in the, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to understand the subtlety of this idea of worldliness. It's not just a list of movies that we can't watch or a list of music that we can't listen to. It's not just expressed in an inappropriate style of dress or, or, or you know, a certain kind of substance that we may drink or, or put into our bodies. Certainly those can be fruits of worldliness, but we have to understand that this problem first uh, is revealed within the heart within the attitudes of the Christian, is dealing with our very affections before God. And that's the place where we have to work especially hard to root out this vine of Sodom in our hearts and in our minds. I remember R.C. Sproul pointing out that nothing gets into our heart except through our minds. And so, uh, and we're not just talking about positive thinking, but we're talking about the sort of renewal that, that Paul described in Romans 12, that, that we're not to be transformed to the spirit of this age, but we're or sort of not to be, um, yeah, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, uh, but not to be conformed into the likeness of this world, into the spirit of this age. We, we are to, to through the, the, the means of the mind, what we think upon, what we meditate upon, uh, through that means... God's truth works its way into our hearts and into our souls. And as his spirit uh, breathes life upon it and, 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 and energizes the truth of God's gospel within us, then we are changed and sanctified. But it begins in the mind. And this is often where we need to be aware of, of what are we thinking about throughout the day. How do we start our morning? Are we starting the morning with the news and, uh, you know, maybe throughout the day the TV is running in the background and, and just kind of spewing forth all the, the filth of this system. Or, or maybe it is through the, the, the media that you listen to throughout the day. Um, you know, I certainly enjoy sometimes uh, fictional books and that sort of thing. But, but what is, the, what is the, the dominant thing upon which you're thinking and meditating on? Um, I, I, I think um, I wasted many hours as a, as a young man on the farm because we would spend a lot of time in the tractors 
And uh, of course, at that time, we didn't have the convenience of podcasts on your smartphone and all of that. You could download. We had you know, cassette players. And most of the tractors didn't actually have working cassette players or working air conditioning. I know I sound like an old person right now. But the only thing that usually worked to pass the time was uh, the radio. And so the radio is just kind of playing. And you're on this tractor for 10 or 12 hours for you know, the day working during the busy times. And not even realizing that, that you are being affected by the music and the, the person that's talking through the, the talk show or whatever it is, that all of those ideas, all of those philosophies, all of those mentalities are, are coming into your mind and working, working their way into your heart and you don't even realize it's happening. And then you're confronted with the truth of God's word and suddenly you're saying, that's offensive. I don't agree with that. I don't like that. Why not? Well, because I have begun to adopt the notions of this system into my heart and mind, not even realizing it. And it can come through something as innocent as, you know, Paw Patrol or a, a kid's show that we think, oh, well, there's, those are innocent. And yes, we do watch some Paw Patrol at our house, but, but you do want to be careful as a parent. You want to sometimes maybe just sit down and as painful as it is, try to endure an episode and, and take in uh, what are the philosophies here? What are they saying about uh, people, about adults, about crime, about justice? Is there any mention of God? How's God talked about. We want to be intentional with everything that we're doing, with everything that our children are doing. And yes, this does take work and it takes time, but this is what God has called us to, lest we be guilty of the very thing James is rebuking these early believers for. Because he tells us that if you wish to be a friend of the world, you're actually making yourself an enemy of God. And that is a very sobering statement indeed, that we, by bringing these ideas and philosophies into our hearts and minds, that we actually can be actively making ourselves an enemy of the living God, not even realizing that it's happening. But if you come to the Word of God, if you hear the Word of God properly taught and you do find aspects of it offensive, then there's a good chance that there are areas within your life that the word of God is confronting where you have begun to set yourself up against the living God. This is at the very uh, heart of, of Israel's problem. And, and, and they, they often even sincere and intending to worship the one true God who delivered them would set up idols and uh, false forms of worship, forms of worship that God did not prescribe, or maybe just redefining God a little bit to, to kind of fit their own desires and preferences. And in so doing, they actually made themselves an enemy of the living God. It is a, a shocking reality that takes place. And, and, and this, this doesn't always look like, you know, the, the, the hardcore atheist shaking his fist at heaven and cursing God. But sometimes it looks like the, the, the churchgoer or the Sunday school teacher or whatever it might be that in their heart and mind have begun to redefine who God is, have begun to embrace the ideologies of this age and in reality have become an enemy of God himself. If you think about the enemies of God 
throughout Scripture, it never ends well for them. There may be a time where they seem to to flourish, uh, a time where they seem to prosper, but in the end, their ruin comes like a thief in the night. And we certainly may, even in the past few years, have experienced a, a fear of becoming enemies of the state, knowing that we could have bank accounts frozen, we could, we could have property seized, we could end up in jail or with fines, and, and nobody really desires to be an enemy of the state, and there may be a sense of fear in that. Or, or maybe you, you have a sense of fear that you don't want to become an enemy um, of your neighbors, that, uh, you know, that, that you don't want to ruffle any feathers in, uh, in, in, in what you say or in talking of Christ or giving maybe a gospel track light. Well, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to become an enemy. So I'll just be quiet. And, and we have a sense of fear of that. Or maybe within our own families, you know certain uh, topics are just sort of out of bounds. You, you can't bring those up at the family get-togethers. And if you do, then it's going to be a long, miserable experience. And, and sometimes we just want to do what, whatever's going to be the path of least resistance because we don't want to be enemies of our own family. But do you have a sense of fear in your heart, in your life, that you become an enemy of the living God? Is that something that concerns you as a believer? I don't think we probably really think all that much about it, uh, especially, you know, for us uh, enjoying the benefits of the new covenant, the promises of God's grace and mercy to us through Christ, that, that we can be guilty of forgetting of some of the strong warnings in the New Testament, and not only in the Old. But just considering the, the enemies of God described in the Old Testament, speaking to his own people, in um, Jeremiah fifteen six, God says, You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backward, so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I'm weary of relenting. I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I have made their widows more in number than the sand of the seas. I have brought against the mothers of the young men a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven has grown feeble. She has faded away. Her son went down while it was yet day. She has been shamed and disgraced. And the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. It is not a pleasant thing when the people of God set themselves against God, their creator, and refuse to humble themselves and repent, because then when they become enemies of God, he himself will bring judgment upon them. And it is a terrifying thing. Or to the pagan nations, Ezekiel 28, he said in... uh, Uh, Ezekiel 28, verse 20, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face towards towards Sidon and prophesy against her and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets and the slain shall fall in her midst By the sword that is against her on every side, then they will know that I am the Lord. And so it is of every nation or people that sets themselves against the living God. In time, 
His judgment will fall upon them. This is not a safe place to be. We do not want to end up as those who are opposed to God, but to humbly come under his rule and reign and enjoy the peace and blessing. So is that just an Old Testament sort of warning? Well, listen to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 6, um, verse 4. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then having fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And then the author of Hebrews goes on in verse 9 to to address the Christians to whom he's writing, and and I want you to hear this as well, uh, so I don't want us to be overwhelmed in, in despair. But listen to the admonition that he gives in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, there is a strong warning for those who who set themselves against the living God. It would be like the field that though it was cultivated and planted and it bears nothing but thistles and briars, it will be burned. But he says, for you, in your case, We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation because God is just. He is faithful to his promises. And for all that have truly called upon him, who have humbled themselves before him, have have fled to the cross for mercy, then there is this hope of full assurance. But we are called to endure, not to become sluggish, but to be imitators of those who were patiently enduring and finish the race. And I know this is heavy, and it's not my aim to, uh, as I said, burden your hearts to the point of despair, but also that we might fully understand the seriousness of giving ourselves over to the idols, to the mindset, to the worldview of the day in which we live, to the empty doctrines of demons, as is described in the word of God. These consequences are very real. And instead of leading us to despair, these hard words from Scripture should drive us to Christ, who is a faithful and sure refuge to all who draw near to him. They shouldn't leave us in a place of hopelessness, but from the the awareness of our own need and our own uh, danger, flee to Christ, who is our captain, who is the mighty deliverer for all who flee to him. And James reminds us that, that God himself is a jealous God. And there's a little bit of uh, <clears throat> discrepancy here, um, depending on which translation you're reading from. 
As to exactly what James is saying, uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it says that, uh, or do you, in verse 5, chapter 4, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? And speaking of the fact that God is a jealous God, that he, he is um, jealous over the, the loyalty and allegiance of his people. Um, the other possible translation, which is um, translated by the uh, King James Version, I think the NIV as well takes a little bit different uh, take on, on what James says here. The King James Version says of this verse, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Uh, the NIV is somewhat similar. Or do you think scripture says without reason, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. So one of two things James is saying here, and both are biblical ideas. First of all, James could be meaning that God is himself a jealous God, and therefore he is jealously, as you said, yearning over us as his covenant people, as a bride would her groom or a groom the bride. There's a sense of holy jealousy. And, 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 and to be aware of that in our allegiance and loyalty. Or James is pointing out the fact that our own spirit that lives within us, by, according to the fallen nature, is a spirit that does have a tendency to lust after things, to covet things. So depending on how the translators uh, deal with it, um, changes the meaning somewhat. But as I said, both are biblical principles. Uh, we know that God is a jealous God, and this is affirmed in other places in the scripture that, that speak of God as such. And uh, that's a biblical uh, truth that, that we could affirm. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 23 says, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24. And so that's a, that's a biblical principle, and that is uh, why the New Testament writers would even say that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, because he is a jealous God. He requires and longs for the allegiance and loyalty of his people. And we can think of this even in terms of, of marriage, uh, of our own marriages, you know, I'm grateful for you as a church body and, uh, and I'm grateful for the men in this body who, who want to uh, be uh, held accountable to, to honor God and to walk in the way that God's called them, desiring to lead your homes, desiring to lead your families and to pursue God despite a culture that tells men they are to be quiet and they're to be in the background and that they're essentially useless, that, that no, I see here the, the men desiring to, to honor the Lord, to lead and to be involved. But I also know that if my wife begins talking too much about the godliness of, a, of you men or a specific man, if she begins to say too many things about uh, the, you know, the, the godly men around us, then I'm going to become jealous in my heart. And, I, and, and there's a sense of, of, of a, a holy jealousy within, in a marriage, right? That that's, a, that's a good and healthy thing. 
Or if, if I, looking out at the, the godly women in this body and, and, and thank God for your desire to honor him in the role that he's given you and to, to be an example to your children and to, um, to be a blessing in your homes and in the church family, that's a wonderful thing and, and, and I certainly thank God for that. But if I was to begin talking too much about a specific woman to my wife, naturally she also would become jealous and, 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 and would, would be upset that there is too much uh, affection there. And, and we know within our marriages, that's a good thing. That's a God-given jealousy that should be present within the, the marriage relationship. And we have to, to guard our own hearts and minds in, in, in relating to one another as brothers and sisters. Now, of course, there's always the extreme side where, you know, you're not allowed to talk to someone of the opposite sex. You're not allowed to look at them. And, and, and that would be obviously unhealthy as well. So there's, there's a balance. But I think you understand what I'm meaning. That there is a sense of needed and, and required allegiance within the marriage. That's why we make the marriage vows to, to cleave only unto our spouse. Well, God is, is, is the same in regards to his people. He, he, he has redeemed us by his blood. He has called us to himself out of the system of this world. He has washed us by the very blood of the lamb. And he has put the robes of Christ upon us. He has taken the family ring and put it upon our finger. He's brought us into the very inheritance of Christ. And it's because of his great love that he is jealous for your loyalty and allegiance. He does not want you to give your affections to another. That is like unto adultery, James says. And God knows that the Lovers of this world mean only to destroy and abuse. And so it's in love that he even chastises us and disciplines us and breaks our heart at times in repentance. This is also an act of his love for our greatest good. He's, he's not like the abusive husband that never lets his wife leave the house or have any other friends because he is un, in, in an unhealthy way jealous of her, but God is like the noble and wise king who knows the deceit of the enemy and the destruction and destructive intentions of the enemy and loves his bride with fierce and unending love. And even if he must offend her, he will work to keep her from the ploys of the enemy. God is a faithful husband and has already demonstrated his love towards the bride in giving of his very self, Christ leaving the glory and the splendor of heaven, humbling himself to become like us, taking up human flesh, to live in humility and obscurity, and to live as a refugee. And then we see Christ walking his entire life under the full weight of the law, yet never stumbling. And Christ going to the cross that he might redeem us and sanctify us unto himself. As Paul describes in Ephesians 5, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Certainly it's not wrong that Christ desire a pure 
and spotless bride, and that we would respond to his word with a sense of humility and a willingness to be exposed that we might be clean. You know, if you have food stuck on your face or something spilled on your shirt or clothes and, and, and no one points it out to you, then you might say, well, why didn't someone say something? Uh, you know, and, and maybe sometimes we feel awkward. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to make them feel awkward, but then, we, you know, <laughs> don't, don't uh, help them out. And uh, certainly a problem with uh, facial hair. Sometimes my wife has to be like, you guys are something like stuck in your beard. You need to get that off of there. And, uh, and, and so is it wrong that Christ would desire his bride be spotless? No, no husband expects his bride-to-be to come through the door with a dress that is stained and filthy and has, you know, grease on it. Uh, I mean, maybe some guys would appreciate the willingness to, to work and get, and get dirty with grease or whatever, but obviously on the wedding day, there's an expectation of, of purity, of cleanliness, that she be clean, her body be washed, and her dress be white, and, and, and not be stained with, with filthiness, that her hair not be all tangled and, 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 and dirty, but to, to be presentable. We know that's true in, in a physical sense. How much more, spiritually speaking, does Christ desire a pure and spotless bride when he comes? And so let us individually and corporately pursue Christ, pursue the holiness that marks him. Let us turn away from the promises of this empty world. Let us be intentional with our thoughts and attitudes, taking every thought captive as we go into the week, realizing that those attitudes and thoughts will work their way into our heart if we're not careful. To be fleeing from this idea of worldliness, of a self-sufficiency, and to be running instead to humbly come before the cross of Christ, rejoicing in his deliverance, in his promise of forgiveness for all who call upon him because he is the one who died that we might live. He is the one who was torn so that we might be repaired. He was the one who was crushed so we might be lifted up and upheld by the Father. And on the third day, we rejoice that Christ rose from the grave, that we would also rise up and walk in the newness of life. And so, dear Christian, continue to run, continue to seek after Christ, shedding this old man, this sin that so easily entangles, and keeping our eyes upon him. And if you've never professed faith in Christ, then I urge you to run from the, the dying, destructive philosophies of this age, the hopelessness that it offers, and to come unto Christ trusting in his sufficiency and grace and that you too may live in his presence. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll close there this morning. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word and Lord, we just are so aware that our uh, flesh is, is weak, our minds are uh, fickle and, and easily distracted. Lord, that, that if it was not for the fact that you are holding on to us that you are even now uh, sustaining us by your spirit and, and granting faith and trust, Lord, that we would certainly fall away. And, uh, and so we just give you thanks for your steadfast love, <clears throat> that you are uh, a faithful God, faithful to all your covenant promises. 
and we rejoice in the sufficient and finished work of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, may it never be a license to sin or to uh, get along in the world, but Lord, even as, as Jesus promised, that as they hated him, that they too would hate those who follow after him. But this would not keep us, we pray, from sharing the good news, from living a life that honors you, that we would fear you above man, and Lord, that we would look forward to and long for the day when Christ uh, returns and his glory fills the earth as water the sea, that we would live in light of such a day. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.